get going. It's, it just, it's, I know it's Christmas Eve, and it's raining, and it's just weird. The whole thing is weird. It's a weird day. But it is the Lord's day, I guess, first and foremost, above all. But pouring down rain the day before Christmas just doesn't seem right. But I guess it's better than a blizzard. Yes. Well, yeah, we're supposed to get the snow tomorrow, so that's... Uh, John 1 is where we're going to be, and just for the sake of, I guess, putting this out there on the record. Um, we have far, we have not come anywhere near exhausting uh, everything that could be said about denominations, um, but I was just going to kind of end it with this today. I, just a reminder, of course, next, I mentioned, I think, Wednesday night. Next week, uh, next Sunday, full schedule of services, but Leafy and I will be gone. We're going out to Central City, and have been asked to speak out there, so we're going to do that. Andrew J. will be here handling the services um, on the 31st, and then we come back on the 7th, um, we're just going to change directions a little bit, and uh, so <clears throat> uh, with some of the things that we're, that we're going to do, it won't, it won't be denominations, but you know, I'm calling it uh, major religious influences in America, in American history, um, <clears throat> to kind of come at the same issue from a different perspective. But this morning, in conclusion, I wanted to turn our attention to Jehovah's Witnesses. I was going to try and do Mormonism as well, and then Josh Wormley did some really good stuff on Mormonism while he spoke in October, so I'm not going to come back and revisit that. Let's pray, and John 1.1 is where we will start. Father, we thank you for who you are and the word that you have given to us, and of course, we thank you for uh, the gift of our Savior and our salvation uh, a tribute to your grace and mercy, and uh, certainly to our desperate need. Thank you for this. Bless uh, the services today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and so I wanted to read John 1, 1 uh, through 3, because it touches upon probably the most egregious error within the Jehovah's Witness movement, and that is the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. <clears throat> so, uh, a helpful, by the way, if you have a conversation with witnesses, a helpful passage to know. Uh, they do not fit, you've got an outline there, they do not fit a, a formal denominational grouping. I would agree with this. Most people would label them as a cult. Um, they, of course, would not accept the cult status. But they do identify themselves as Christians, and for the sake of what we're doing, we're going to deal with them um, along those lines. That does not mean that we would welcome or endorse them. Um, it is a very aberrant form of Christianity at best. But they do identify themselves um, as Christians. So let's talk, number one on the outline, their origin. Uh, where did they come from? Um, and so let me give you several things that define that. The, the official Jehovah's Witness position is that Jesus founded them. So that would be their position, right? Where did the Jehovah's Witnesses come from? Duh. We came from Jesus. Jesus is the founder. 
Um, most people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses take a different view, um, and they credit the establishment of Jehovah's Witnesses with a man by the name of Charles Taze, T-A-Z-E, Russell, um, if you care for his middle name, Charles Taze Russell, uh, who lived 1852 to 1916. He was a non-Trinitarian, so long before he established the Witnesses or anything that would become the Witnesses, he rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. He was a Christian Zionist, which meant that Israel must inhabit the land before Christ the King could return. And he wished to restore Christianity to its original beliefs and practices. Now, if I could just pause here and just a comment that may, you know, that we, that we will come back to. Um, as we work through denominations, and I began to look at denominations and all that went in it, um, I realized, because again, within every denomination, there are so many variations within that denomination, and I wanted to give some consideration to the things that would impact that, and eventually we'll get to it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting to it, but we will spend some time getting to it. One of the most monumental influences in American Christian practice was the Second Great Awakening of the late 1800s. And um, in addition to the Second Great Awakening and the good things that came out of it, and Second Great Awakening would be men like D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and whatever beneficial ministry they had, the Second Great Awakening also was the birthplace of just a tremendous amount of lunatic American cultish Christianity. I mean, I mean, just, just goofball stuff, and 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 it all it all came out of that. And we will we will talk about one of the most notorious figures of the Second Great Awakening, and we will talk about his influence and the burnt over district of Western New York and all of the aberrations that came out of that through his horrifically distorted um, view of the Bible. And this is a movement, this is a man who is living and growing up in that framework of all that religious pandemonium that we collectively call America's Second Great Awakening. So he wanted to re restore Christianity to its original beliefs. This is pretty common, right? Everybody wants to go back to the way this, right? this is Mormonism. Nobody was doing it right. We're going to get it right. Jehovah's Witnesses, nobody's doing it right. We're going to get it right. And so in 1881, 1881, he founded what became known as Zion's Watchtower Tract Society. Now just as kind of an adjunct to Charles Taze Russell, you notice the time frame in which he lived. It was a very conservative time in American history. And yet Charles Taze's Russell, Charles Taze Russell's wife accused him of infidelity and accused him so successfully of infidelity that not only did the court grant her a divorce, but she granted her, the court granted her alimony, which today is very commonplace, but in the early 20th century, the late 19th century, not commonplace at all. Um, and so it, it, this, I think, is probably another one of the reasons that the witnesses don't want to be associated with him is because of his own... Uh, questionable conduct. When he died in 1916, 
the leadership of the Watchtower Track Society fell into the hands of a man by the name of Joseph Rutherford, who was known as the judge because he had been a judge. He had, he had, he had been assigned, he was a, a, a judge, a court judge. And under Rutherford's leadership, there developed a, serious divisions and cracks within the people who followed the Watchtower Track Society. And those who stayed with Rutherford in 1931 changed the name of the society to Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, you know that they distribute still the Watchtower literature that you can get at. So that was 1931, uh, <clears throat> early days of the Great Depression. Joseph Rutherford. <clears throat> so that's, that's where they began. They were a publishing. They did a lot of publishing. They did a lot of printing. Um, they do, of course, the, the distribution. So, so that's, that's where they came from. Uh, the two main figures, Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Rutherford. Their core doctrines. Right, we turn our attention to their core doctrines. Uh, the first is, of course, that God is Jehovah. Jehovah is God. And they, of course, use, as we primarily do, I mean, I, I think you're probably familiar enough with the world and have access enough to radio and, you know, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> podcasts and all of those kinds of things that the word Jehovah is not really the word used much anymore. The Yahweh is probably far more prevalent. Um, <clears throat> so... <clears throat> Right? What we know, right, and now I'm kind of off on tangent, right? You know that all we have are four consonants, and that's part of the problem of pronunciation. We have four consonants in the Hebrew language for Jehovah, and we may someday find out that we were all wrong in its pronunciation. But we use Jehovah. Most people these days use Yahweh. But God is Jehovah. That is who God is. On the other hand, Jesus is not God. And Jehovah's Witnesses are very adamant about that. Jesus is not God. Jesus is not Jehovah. Now, folks, we would, of course, we are Trinitarians, and not only are we Trinitarians, we would argue adamantly that Jesus is Jehovah in a human body. One God, three persons. Zechariah predicts of Christ on the cross they shall look upon me who they have pierced. And John 19 tells us they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Jesus is Jehovah. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny that. They believe that he is the Savior. They believe that he is God's Son. But he is not God. And, and this is a variation of what we call theologically Arianism. Arius was a religious priest from a long time ago who denied the existence of the Trinity and began to teach that <clears throat> Jesus was a creation. The Father created Jesus. He's, he's above men but below the Father. Um, <clears throat> and if you grew up in a, in a liturgical world, you are familiar probably more so than we in the Baptist world would be with the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was the result of the church dealing with the issue, is Jesus God or not? And the orthodox position is elucidated in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God. 
And so whatever other flaws Roman Catholicism might have, and it has many, it is not flawed in its view of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is God. <clears throat> so their court doctrines are that Jehovah is God, and of course his followers are his witnesses. Jesus is God's son, but Jesus is not God. And salvation comes from Jesus paying a ransom. And, and we talked about this early on in the denominational worlds. There are a variety of explanations for the death of Christ on the cross. The one that I would teach, the one that you would no doubt believe, is known as the penal substitution theory. That Jesus suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. He suffered as our substitute and he suffered God's anger, the anger that God directed towards unbelief on the cross. Um, but the ransom theory is a little bit different. And of course, the Bible does tell us that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. And without getting all into the nuances of the ransom theory, some people believe that Jesus' death was a ransom paid to the Father. And some people believe that Jesus' death was a ransom paid to Satan. That in order to free us from the clutches of sin, Satan had to be paid off. And so, okay. <clears throat> but here's where, here's, <clears throat> rather than work back through the, the intricacies of the ransom theory, the ransom theory, folks, leaves you in a position of not fully believing in salvation by grace through faith. And let me just read to you, They're, they have a website, jw.org, you can go there and find all these. As, as, again, as much as possible when I did this, I tried to let denominations speak for themselves. Um, so here's what they say on their website. I took this from their frequently asked questions section. Is belief in Jesus all that we need to be saved? That's the question. Answer, No. Although we must believe in Jesus to gain salvation, more is required. Acts 16, 30 and 31. The Bible says, just as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. James 2, 26. To be saved, we must learn about Jesus and his father Jehovah, John 17, 3. Build faith in them, John 12, 44. Demonstrate our faith by obeying their commands, Luke 6, 46. Jesus taught that not everyone who called him Lord would be saved, but only those doing the will of his Father who is in heaven, Matthew 7, 21. Continue to demonstrate our faith despite hardships. Jesus made that clear when he said the one who has endured to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, 13. So they believe in a works salvation. They believe in a works salvation. Now, admittedly, folks, not to defend the Jehovah's Witnesses, but admittedly the relationship between faith and works is complicated. Because I would hope that none of us would have confidence in a profession that seems to be nothing other than empty. But that is not the same thing as saying your works save you. It is not splitting hairs, folks, to point out that the faith that God gives somebody that saves them is a faith that is oriented towards obedience, 
what other kind of faith would God give us? That's really the issue. What other kind of faith would God give us? But that is not the same as saying you have to work for your salvation, which is clearly what the Jehovah's Witnesses are doing. A sociologist by the name of James Beckford, um, who was a British sociologist who, interestingly enough, studied religion, reported two significant distinguished features of the conversion process when related by Jehovah's Witnesses. He said, they typically spoke of their conversion experience as a steady progression of mental states in which witnesses work for their conversion by a methodical confrontation with intellectual obstacles and by a deliberate program of self-reform. Conversion is not represented as something that happened to them the way we would frame it. I got saved. Passive voice. I got saved. Christ saved me. It is framed as something that they achieved. The work salvation. Beckford noted also that those he interviewed among Jehovah's Witnesses regarded sudden emotional upheavals in religious consciousness as suspect. Experiences which smack of a sudden or idiosyncratic illumination cannot be reconcilable with either the tenor of God's historical practice or the nature of his special covenant with the Watchtower Society. Now, that again is a whole other issue that we will tackle, folks, because the role in place of emotional, idiosyncratic illumination is something that has troubled all forms of Christianity And this is, again, one of the reasons why I think we'll be benefited to turn our attention to major movements within religious movements within American history. Because they have all been accompanied by interaction at a deeper level with Bible truth, as well as some component of emotionalism that has produced troubles in some way down the line. So anyway... So these are the core doctrines. They do not believe in a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. They believe in a work salvation. They believe that God created Christ. I mean, it is aberrant. I mean, I, I just could not say this enough. It is aberrant. It is unorthodox. It is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture and their view of Christ and salvation. Core doctrines, they believe that the kingdom is a real government in heaven that will soon replace human governments. So the kingdom of God is a real government in heaven that will soon replace human governments. They do believe that Jesus is the king and that he actually began ruling in 1914. They also believe that the most faithful, who number 144,000, will be resurrected to live in heaven to rule with Jesus in his kingdom.
but the remainder of the obedient will live in perfect health and everlasting life on earth. So 144,000 will get to live in heaven with Jesus, and everybody else who is obedient will get to live in paradise, but it will be paradise on earth. So it is, at the very least, an unusual view of the kingdom. And it, again, as I mentioned, it it, kind of defies some of the more traditional denominational categories like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, because it's, it's a little bit of all things. Core doctrines, hell is not real. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in everlasting punishment. They believe people who die simply pass out of existence. But they also believe, and I find this to be fascinating in that I can't quite understand how they've come to this conclusion. They believe at the very end, God will raise all of the dead and provide one more opportunity, and then those who still refuse to learn his ways will then be annihilated. So that there is, there is no purgatory as in the Roman Catholic system. But there is this kind of second chance that everybody will get. They also core doctrine. <clears throat> Boy, we're going to be done very early today. So I hope there's donuts left over. <laughs> we'll have time to go back for, hey, it's, it's Christmas Eve, Right. Wait, nobody's nobody is anybody really watching their weight on Christmas Eve? Also, they observe the Lord's Supper annually. How often do you observe the Lord's Supper? We observe the Lord's Supper annually because it is the Passover. And the Passover was observed annually. So it is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Passover meal and it was observed annually so we observe the Lord's Supper annually. So those are some of their core doctrines. Um, And some of them we're pretty familiar with. I'm going to guess that we knew that they don't believe in Jesus as God. So after that, let's talk number three about their public image. And, And that's just the way that I put it. Because they're, you know, if you talk to the average guy in the street about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, he's probably not going to jump to the fact that they don't believe in Jesus as God as quickly as he's going to point to some of the other things that Jehovah's Witnesses are noted for. Number one, they have a very long history of setting dates for biblically predicted events. They are some of the great date setters. Now, I would have to admit to you folks that I did not do a tremendous amount of research trying to understand any of this, right? Jesus has been reigning since 1914. How did they come to that date? I don't know. I don't know. But here are some of the things that they do believe. That what they call the time of the end began in 1799. 
And this comes from a Watchtower Track Society magazine article dated March 1st, 1922. Time of the end began in 1799. They believe that what, what they call the Lord's Second Presence began in 1874. So 75 years after the beginning of the time of the end is the Lord's second presence. And again, this is from a magazine article dated March 1, 1922. Their publication, Watchtower Track Society. <clears throat> and as I've already mentioned, they believe that Jesus has been ruling in heaven as king, since that's what the kingdom is. The rule of Jesus, a real government in heaven. <clears throat> since 1914. And again, and I'm not trying to be funny or facetious, I don't have any idea if they correlated that in any way to the outbreak of World War I, which was 1914. Apart from saying this, folks, World War I had a tremendous impact on the way many people viewed religion and what they had come to understand Protestant Christianity to be teaching. And World War I very quickly undid that very optimistic view that many people had about the world. So, again, we'll make mention of that somewhere down the line. So they have a long history of date setting. What a public image of Jehovah's Witnesses, they're date setters. Secondly, this is perhaps one of the more, more prominent ones, they do not accept blood transfusions. They do not accept blood transfusions. And this is because the Bible, and they are right in this. Now, right, whether or not they are right in the application of this, they are right in this, folks, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament prohibit the consumption of blood. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament prohibit the consumption of blood. Acts chapter 15 is very clear about this. I mean, right? I mean, Acts 15 is really critical because the church is having a lengthy conversation about the law and the transference of things from the law into the New Testament economy, specifically the issue of circumcision. No, circumcision goes. The law has gone. But don't eat blood. Don't commit fornication and don't eat blood. So we would, we would note that the, the, so the question then becomes, folks, right? I mean, because I, I, I mean, maybe, maybe in the Baptist world there are people who would take that, right? They're not wrong in their understanding of the injunction. The question is does receiving a blood transfusion violate the precept? of eating blood. So, <clears throat> I don't know that it does. I don't know that I would develop, that I would go where they go. But, but let's at least give them the latitude of understanding what the injunction is. And they understand some of the injunctions very clearly. It's, <clears throat> it's just the way that they apply them that becomes... I think, some of the problem. 
<clears throat> so they don't accept blood transfusion since blood trans since blood may not be consumed in the in the Bible. They do not participate in politics, <clears throat> by which I mean they do not vote, they do not lobby, they do not run for office. They are completely apolitical because Jesus did not participate in the political process and because they desire to express loyalty to his kingdom. So they are non-participants in the political process. And again, right, are we to be loyal to Christ? Is he to be number one? Yes. Does that preclude political involvement? I think you know that we would see that completely differently than they did, than they do. Okay, their public image. They do not participate in nationalistic ceremonies <clears throat> because God alone deserves worship and things like saluting the flag are, are, is, is an act of worship. Right? So again, folks, we would not, we would not argue with them over the core. God alone deserves worship we would probably disagree over whether or not recognizing the flag is an act of worship. Is saluting the national colors genuinely an act of worship? And, and I think, folks, if, if we would think about that, I would hope that none of us would say unequivocally yes or no, because I think the answer to that has to be it depends, doesn't it? Doesn't it depend upon the person who is saluting the flag and the reason for which they're saluting it? But anyway, they do not petition in nationalistic ceremonies because God alone deserves worship. And to celebrate your country in any way is an act of worship. Neither do they enter military service because they believe the taking up of weapons is, is wrong. So they would, they would approach it as a pacifist, which the Anabaptist, you know, here's one of the distinctions between being a Baptist like we are and being an Anabaptist, is that Anabaptists were traditionally pacifistic, not taking up weapons. They do not celebrate Christmas <clears throat> because the Bible tells us to celebrate his death, but it doesn't tell us to celebrate his birth. And they do not celebrate Easter because we are to celebrate his death and not his resurrection. Now, I, I think that we could make the biblical case there that they are really wrong on that, right? They're wrong at its core, not just in the application of a doctrine. I would say this, folks, that the Lord's Day services are the celebration of the resurrection. That, that Easter may be pushing the envelope a bit, but that every Sunday is the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. We meet on the Lord's Day, the day of his resurrection. 
And they don't celebrate birthdays because there are no birthday celebrations in the Bible. And birthday parties have pagan roots. Into which I, okay, I did not know that birthday parties had pagan roots. Um, And I would just say this, folks, right? I would say this to us, not with any reference to the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? We have to be very, 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 very careful about building hardcore convictions about things that you can't find in the Bible because you can't find wearing socks in the Bible either. And you can't find wearing dresses in the Bible and you can't find wearing suits and ties in the Bible. And the problem is not having a conversation about socks, dresses, suits, and ties. The problem is in having the conversation that the Bible takes a position when it does not. So, does anybody's birthday get celebrated in the Bible? No, it does not. Does that mean it's sinful to celebrate somebody's birthday? You know... I don't know how you would make that argument, but they do. But they do. So those are some of their more prominent public image things, right? They're they're kind of viewed, right, as by most people as religious crackpots. And I think that these are where they get their cult label. Again, they are an aberrant dimension of Christianity. They are completely unorthodox. But I I would argue that it is probably these kinds of things that have contributed more to their unpopularity in the broader public world. Non-political, non-participatory, right? Just viewed as kind of cranky people who don't like America or whatever country they live in. So, and then I just want to close, I just want to close by making this, right? I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, would not support Jehovah's Witnesses in any way. I have a half a brother who for many years was a practicing Jehovah's Witness. Um, so we've had numerous conversations about that over the years. However, I think that we would, I think that it would do us good to realize that they have tremendously benefited religious freedom, not just in America, but around the world. The Jehovah's Witnesses have been very quick to take their religious conflicts into the courts. I think you have that in your outline there. They have been very quick to take their religious conflicts to the courts. And not just in the United States, but in every country in which they are represented. And let me just give you two. You don't don't need to write these down. It depends on whether or not you care. but, but, But there are two that have had significant impact. When I, when I was working on my degree in history at UNO, one of the teachers always hammered into us that, right, when we, we dealt with history from two, through two lenses, context, why was it happening then, and legacy, what does it mean to us today? And so, okay. So in, in 1943, the, the witnesses had one of their cases go to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, this was West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. Uh, For those of you that are legal geeks, 319 U.S. 624, 1943 is the citation. And the court ruled that you cannot compel people to salute the flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance. These are things that witnesses don't do. Right? In 1943, the middle of World War II, 
Every elementary child, every high school child stood up every day and recited the Pledge of Allegiance. And the witnesses said, but we don't do that. And the court said, you can't make somebody do that. Now we might think that that part is stupid, right? We might actually take the opposite position. We might think that it's good to make children support, salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance. But the legacy is this. From that point on, courts began to be willing to look at individual religious practices more carefully. That's a, that could be a good thing. And then another case was Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York versus the village of Stratton. Again, for any legal geek, 536 U.S. 150, 2002. And the court ruled there that it violated the First Amendment to require a permit before evangelization. Because the village of Stratton said, fine, you guys want to, you guys want to distribute your literature, you've got you to obtain a license and pay a fee and jump through these hoops and the Witnesses took it to court, and the court said, can't make them do that. That violates people's free speech to make them get a license. So there's, there's some legacy to that, right? That, that's, that's something that we can rely on in our own benefit. So again, not a witness, not in any way supportive of their theology, but they have made some contributions to society in their fight for religious freedom. Okay, I got 1038. But we're going to stop there unless you have a question or comment or your own experience with witnesses that you think might benefit us. Brother Dan.